It was the album that would spark Gil Scott Heron's career. It would go on to take a life of its own. The track, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, would be particularly quoted and referenced in writings and music, and become a part of pop culture, though it was often misquoted or used in the wrong context. This album paved the way for a new wave of poetry and furthermore, many would argue, the future of rap music. To this day, its 14 tracks still resonate with the intensity and the echo of revolution. The unfortunate relevance of the album, 51 years since its release, seems like a reflection of our failure to take heed of the warnings of past words of wisdom. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, poets, and revolutionaries. I am your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we are digging into our first piece of poetry and music, Gil Scott Heron's A New Black Poet, Small Talk at 125th and Lennox. have been important to me for as long as I can remember. Their sound, their construction, their origins. End quote. Gilbert Scott Heron was born in Chicago, Illinois on April Fool's Day, 1949, a fact that he would later proclaim from time to time during his witty and legendary monologues. His artistry was not to be subdued as he came from a good blend of determination and motivation. His mother, Bobby Scott, was a librarian, a teacher, and a classical singer who sang with the New York Oratorial Society. His father, Gilbert St. Elmo Heron, from Jamaica, was a professional football player. And for us Americans, that would be soccer. His father was, in fact, the first professional football player of color to play for Celtic Football Club in Glasgow, which certainly must have taken a lot of determination, not to mention thick skin. His parents' relationship was rocky, to say the least. Depending upon which side of the family was giving witness, it's safe to say that the relationship was completely over by the time Gill Singer left for Scotland to play football in 1951. Father and son would not meet again until Baby Gill was 26 years old. After the separation, it was deemed best that young Gill would live with his grandmother, Lily Scott, in Jackson, Tennessee. Thus, he would make the trek southward by train in December of 1950. Jackson would be the first place he truly heard music, noticing it and taking it in. The music in question would be what is referred to as the blues. The blues in Jackson, Tennessee, was synonymous with Shannon Street, which was deemed a taboo by his grandmother. The juke joints, as they were known, could influence a youngster in the wrong way. Lily Scott's home was a loving one, but Gill could feel something missing from his life. His father was rarely mentioned and never present, while his mother, who spent most of her time away from Gill during this period as a teacher in Puerto Rico, was more like an aunt who would stop by from time to time to visit. This feeling of abandonment gnawed at him, 
and as a consequence made him even more grateful to have his grandma. Although not allowing him to venture into Shannon Street, she did, however, encourage his interest in music. When the local funeral home was relocating, she convinced the men cleaning out the place to move a well-used piano that sat inside into her living room. She wanted her grandson to learn and play hymns for her sewing circle meetings. And with that began his music playing. The continuous flowing of the blues from local clubs and radio would serve to shape Gill's later writing and performing style. The raw, gut-wrenching honesty of the blues, as well as the rhythm with which the lyrics were performed, helped him understand the importance of emphasizing certain words for further impact. Lily persistently read to him and taught him to read by the age of four, reading the Sunday comics and a few chapters from the Bible each night. The Chicago Defender, a staple in many black households in those days, Lily Scott's house being one, introduced him to the work of Harlem Renaissance novelist and poet Langston Hughes. Hughes's influence would remain vital throughout Gill's career. Through the years, he witnessed his grandma speak her mind on several occasions, which seemingly made other black folks nervous. In turn, he noticed that she was an issues woman, looking at things in terms of what's fair and what is not fair. Seeing the world in this manner, she made sure that her grandson didn't take for granted the opportunities available to him. She told him stories about civil rights pioneers such as Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois, among others, introducing Scotty, as he was known to many around Jackson, to their powerful words of self-determination. Later, he would credit his grandma with instilling in him a sense of justice and social consciousness, and therefore attributed his activism to the lessons learned from her by way of conversations on her front porch in the 1950s. In addition to his grandmother, Lane College bookkeeper Albert Porter, who loaned Gill his Smith Corona typewriter, became a good friend of the family. He noticed young Gill struggled to express himself and make sense of the world around him. Porter began schooling him about injustice, providing him with insight into the growing civil rights movement and the brutality experienced by poor blacks in the Deep South. By age 10, he had began writing two to three page pulp detective stories with murders and detailed plots. But then sadly, roughly a year or so into this stage of his life, in November of 1960, Lily Scott died, leaving Gill to feel like an orphan after her death. Having been raised by her and taught so much, essentially becoming who he was because of her, his love for her tormented him. Following the death of his grandma, his mother Bobby, forced to return from abroad, moved back to Jackson to be with her son. Life wasn't easy in Tennessee, something that only served to solidify his sense of social consciousness and injustice. In January of 1962, in an initial attempt to desegregate Jackson, Tennessee schools, Gill found himself to be one of only three black children to attend Tigret Junior High. The transition into the school was rather smooth, but the three students, including Gill, faced months of isolation as the white students rarely spoke to them. After a brief stint of living together in Jackson, mother and son moved to New York City in July of 1962. 
They resided in the Bronx to begin with, sharing an apartment with Bobby's brother, where witnessing African Americans and the conditions they were living in the housing projects left a deep impression on teenage Gill. It was while attending DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx that his talent in the field of writing was recognized by one of his English teachers. Impressed with his writing, said teacher recommended him for a place at the prestigious Fieldston School. After a vetting process, he was accepted. He and his mother would after some time move to 17th Street in New York in the predominantly Hispanic neighborhood of Chelsea. Throughout high school, his interest in politics and social issues did not diminish. Though he guarded his thoughts and views in school settings, he would, however, engage in conversations and debates with one of his friend's fathers. Adding fuel to the fire was his love of reading. He would read everything from the Bible to the works of Karl Marx, and soon he became a believer in socialism. His time at Philston, unfortunately, wouldn't be all that much better than his time at Tigret Junior High back in Tennessee on a social level. Instead of being one of three black students, he was now one of five, which still led to alienation. On a scholarly level, on the other hand, his stay at Philston would be fruitful as it would lead him to win scholarships to several universities. After careful consideration, he finally decided to attend Lincoln University in Pennsylvania as it was there that a slew of great men in his eyes, such as Langston Hughes, Melvin Tolson, Ron Wellburn, Cab Calloway, Thurgood Marshall, Kwame Nkrumah, and many others were alumni. In 1968, at the age of 19, Gill came up with the idea for a novel, one that encaptivated him. After some time trying and finding it difficult to find the proper rhythm and balance between classwork and work on the novel, he eventually asked the school for a leave of absence so he could devote himself fully to writing the book, The Vulture. During the writing process, he would walk the streets near his mother's home with a notebook. Like a journalist, he would strike up conversations with neighbors, soaking up their verbal tics and mannerisms, all material for his novel. The Vulture is a murder mystery, which includes themes of the effects of drugs on urban black life. It would be published by the World Publishing Company in 1970 to positive reviews. In his mother, now a staple in his life, he found honesty and over time found her love to be unconditional and their bond unshakable. There was a getting-to-know-you transitional phase when they were suddenly thrust into each other's daily lives, but the duo soon found comfort in one another. They bonded over their mutual sense of humor and even went as far as to develop their own vocabulary with a little Spanish here, a little slang there, and plenty of inside jokes. Her faith in Gill was never more apparent than when he decided to take a leave from Lincoln to write his novel. By his own admission, his mother was very much aware of his flaws as a person, and neither did she turn a blind eye to his flaws as a writer or a singer. She shared with him her knowledge of contemporary music and literature. Her criticism, as he put it, was always constructive and offered in a manner that let him down easy, always encouraging him forward. For this reason, he would continually bring his ideas, his prose, and poetry to his mother before showing it to anyone else. 
He knew he would learn something from her comments as she gave him a different perspective on what he was doing. He would never complete his undergraduate degree at Lincoln, but with a published novel under his belt and a rising interest in music, he decided to press on. Here is a little fun fact. Despite not receiving his undergrad degree from Lincoln, he would be admitted to the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University and earn an MA, which led to him eventually landing a professorship at Federal City College in Washington, D.C. in 1972. Quote, A good poet feels what his community feels, like if you stub your toe, the rest of your body hurts. End quote. Gill spent a fair amount of his time in New York City visiting jazz clubs and cafes, often participating in open poetry sessions being recited to live music. But it was after seeing the group The Last Poets perform at Lincoln University in December of 1968 that he understood the force and potential that reciting poetry over music held. He was so taken with the performance that immediately afterwards, he approached the vocalist of the group and told him that he wanted to start a group like they had and wondered if that would be all right. He got their blessing. In the autumn of 1969, arguably the most life-altering and most notable of events happened to Spider-Man, as he was known around campus at Lincoln. He met what he referred to as his brother in spirit, pianist, flutist, and a future music collaborator, Brian Jackson. After meeting Brian, whom Gill referred to as Stickman, they would eventually write songs for their Lincoln University-based band called Black and Blues. Brian and Gill connected on a personal level, given that both had been raised as an only child by strong women. It shaped our views of ourselves, Brian stated. We considered ourselves loners on the outside of society. They also saw in each other their own self. What he saw in himself, he saw in me, said Jackson. The stubbornness, the honesty, creatively and emotionally, we were brothers. Though Scott Heron enjoyed the music he was beginning to create together with others and on his own, he considered himself a writer who played music in order to perform his poetry. The standalone power of music wouldn't really hit him until one night in the spring of 1969 when he stopped by the dorm room of Eddie Knowles, the drummer of the Black and Blues, and was introduced to John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. He had heard Coltrane in the past, but only playing other people's music, but Love Supreme? That was Coltrane's. The impact, as he puts it, was immediate. The spirituality... The mix of the instruments, the way the solos were set up, the way the tune was done, and even the length of it at nearly 20 minutes long. Gill became lost in it all. Furthermore, he credits the song with inspiring him to make the final decision to take a leave from school to finish his novel, comparing his indecision to a jackass sat squarely down between two bales of hay and starved to death. By the start of 1970, he realized he could have the best of both worlds without compromising his ideals. Poetry fit into the black American tradition of the spoken word, and even deeper than that, the history of the African griot. 
Many of his poems became lyrics for songs that he composed with Brian. He came to realize that writing poetry and writing lyrics to fit with music had its own challenges compared to long-form prose or novels. To tell a story in eight lines? That was a real challenge. When Brian and Gill were satisfied with the tracks they created, they presented themselves to jazz producer Bob Thiel. Thiel was well known and had a list of bigger names under his belt with the likes of Louis Armstrong and John Coltrane among them. He liked what the duo had to offer, but more so Gill, as Thiel was reluctant to give Brian's contribution proper credit over time. But regardless, there wasn't enough funds at the time to make their album anyway. However, he had read Gill's book of poetry and was very much impressed and open to make a recording of that. If any money was made from that, they would scramble up the funds and do a music album next. Now to keep costs at a minimum, the album was recorded as a club performance. Teaming up with Eddie Knowles and Charlie Sanders on percussion and David Barnes on percussion and vocals, the band was complete and ready to record. Fully named A New Black Poet, Small Talk at 125th and Lennox, the album was produced by Bob Thiel's Flying Dutchman Records. It was first stated that the performance was recorded at a New York nightclub located on the corner of 125th Street and Lenox Avenue sometime around 1970. However, years later, in the liner notes included in the 2012 box set, The Revolution Begins, The Flying Dutchman Masters, Scott Heron insists that a small audience was brought to what he referred to as the studio. The audience was seated on folding chairs to view the performance. Gill's motivation for recording albums was his realization that he felt it to be a much more effective means for getting his message and his ideas across than a novel or books of poetry. He was a strong believer in the civil rights movement, redressing inequality and tackling injustice, and wanted to reach out to as many people as possible. The album's 14 tracks deal with themes such as the superficiality of television and mass consumerism, the hypocrisy of certain black revolutionaries, as well as white middle-class ignorance of the difficulties faced by inner-city residents. His most well-known piece, perhaps then and now, is also one of his most misquoted. Used numerous times at the beginning of articles that went on to talk about something entirely different, it seems most people missed the point of the revolution will not be televised, according to him. The poem wasn't so much about condemning commercialism, rather it was more about denouncing cultural racism, how black people viewed the TV shows they watched, and how that didn't include their point of view of life, let alone their faces. Black folks had always dug on predominantly white shows, shows that in no way epitomized the black experience. Gill's aim was to put those daily images in perspective, real perspective. Ultimately, the song was meant to point out that the first change that happens is in one's mind, making it difficult to record. One's mind has to change before one can change one's actual way of living and doing things. 
The title for the piece had come in the spring of 1970 while Gil, Brian, and some other friends were watching TV. A news report came on about a demonstration. The newscasters began talking about how many people were taking part in the demonstration, and the group agreed people ought to get out there and do something. The revolution won't be televised. One of the friends immediately told him that he should write that down. After this, Gil and Brian started paying more attention to what was being shown on TV. They noticed the commercials and the insidious persuasive power of ads for everything from toilet cleaner to breakfast cereals and anything else streaming through the TV screen. The contrast between the riots and the TV land commercials were obvious and clear. The idea that the revolution would not be televised and neither would be read he felt could certainly be propelled through music. Furthermore, he understood that many schoolchildren, as well as adults, did not read comprehensively enough nor often enough when it came to digging into novels and such. Therefore, through his music, he would be able to inform his community about issues and events that they were not being told about through network programs. Most of what the people in his community were hearing was not coming from black people, but from white people. It wasn't their perspective of what was going on in their neighborhoods. He wanted to do what he could to alter that. Artistically, an element that provided some separation for Gill from other poets was that his poems were not just personal. Instead, they were representations of people he knew and saw around him in his community. His poems didn't deal in generalities, Rather, they were specific stories based on specific current events ranging from police brutality in the South to intimidation of voters in Newark, New Jersey. Another strength was that he avoided the inclusion of abstractions and abstruse lines in his poems. He sought to use ideas and words that everybody could understand. He wanted his writing to talk to the people on the street. This is also how he became a major influence on hip-hop and rap music in the coming years of his career. On the other end of the scope, he didn't like releasing singles. He felt that the people should listen to the whole work in its entirety in order to properly digest the message. This did not sit well with the labels, but he stuck to his guns, which led to a never-ending battle with the label. Quote, we don't try to keep black people from dancing. I like to dance myself, but I do feel that there are things that can be provided as food for thought, things that can be used as inspirational tools, things that can help people to feel better about themselves and their potential. I think those things are primarily overlooked in contemporary music. You can dance to our music and also sit down and think about it." End quote. Music critics received the small talk at 125th and Lennox album with adulation and many found his material imaginative. It has been described as a volcanic upheaval of intellectualism and social critique by all music editor John Bush. Two years later in 1972, he published his second novel, The Nigger Factory, which set on the campus of a historically black college focused on the conflicting ideologies between the administrators and the students. 
it further solidified him as a writer and a voice to be reckoned with. Gil Scott Heron's combination of stage presence, musicality, and rhythm made for a combination destined for superstardom, if that was the wish. But for him, it wasn't. He always remained modest and often preferred to jam in small venues where he could be close to the people. It was obvious that he wasn't interested in chart success or doing what was necessary to generate sales. For him, unlike many, success wasn't about sales, rather about surviving the cutthroat music business with his soul intact and remaining true to his artistry and individuality. Yet another very important element that set him apart, and something that most definitely helped launch his career and keep his material fresh, was his way of blending his radicalism with humor. His imagination was sophisticated, literary, and compact, fused with the honesty and humor often found in the blues. Even when it came to the tragic and the profane, he always managed to avoid taking himself too seriously. He would at one time state that if one had lost one's sense of humor, one had lost one's humanity. He felt that humor was what connected him to the people he admired the most, such as Dick Gregory and Richard Pryor, just to name a few. Not a fan of corporate PR stunts, he was not amused by being referred to as the Black Bob Dylan. And then there was the attribution of being appointed as the godfather of rap. Both ideas put in motion at the urging of his then record label, Clive Davis's Arista Records, of which Gill and Brian were the very first artists signed to the label. Concerning the godfather of rap, he was somewhat ambivalent. I ain't saying I didn't invent rapping, I just cannot recall the circumstances, he said. Many of the first wave rappers who wanted to expose more of the harsh realities of inner city life were inspired by Gill's ability to fuse spoken word poetry over funky beats. His main concern was the growing disrespect towards women and the growing focus on bling and fancy cars, as well as the overemphasis on the beat rather than the words. As an elder statesman, he urged hip-hoppers to not forget their community and to not exploit its tragedies. The success of the Midnight Band and, in later years, the Amnesia Express, was largely due to their live shows and the spontaneity of it, but even more so due to Gill's charisma. Though he could be an intensely private person and often kept to himself, he was transformed on stage, reveling in the music and the mood of the crowd. You wouldn't have known that on many occasions he'd shown up a half hour earlier in his beat-up gray Mercedes, in street clothes needing to borrow a shirt from friends just minutes before going on stage. Basically, he was the same Gil his friends knew from college. That was until the drugs slowly started to take over. Despite success throughout his long career, the drugs would rip the bonds he had developed with longtime friends and bandmates, particularly Brian Jackson, and would progressively wear him down on into his later years, finally succumbing to death on May 27, 2011, after becoming ill when returning from a European road trip. Ten years later, in 2021, Heron was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a recipient of the Early Influence Award, a praise it is unfortunate he did not live to see.
Though he is gone, we will always have his words, and those are worth celebrating. Here is one final quote from the legend himself, and one that should be taken to heart. Don't become someone different just because you can. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make the show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep turning those pages. Thank you.